0: When we ended our class last week, hey, Blendy, there were about 30 hands in the air, and I'm not sure how many of them were unhappy hands, but I think more than two, okay? So if you weren't here last week, I wanna, we're going we're, we're gonna to look this week at 1 Samuel chapter 27. But first, I'm going to try to put a bow on the conversation we had last week. So last week was 1 Samuel 26. And in the midst of 1 Samuel 26, David makes some mention about how his own righteousness is contributing to God's blessing in his life, which sounds strange to our ears, especially those of us that have been raised on the, um, on the truth, the deep truth of Ephesians 2 and other places, that by grace you have been saved, right, through faith. This is not of yourselves. This a gift of God, not as a result of our works, right, so that no one should boast. And so we have a very deep sense that grace is both, unmerited which means undeserved and unconditional which means we don't do anything to bring it about and when it comes to our eternal our election from eternity past that is absolutely true god's saving grace is both unmerited and unconditional he loves us because he loves us we didn't do something to make us worthy of his love forgiveness that we have in christ is given to us as a gift um which all grace is a gift, but it's a particular kind of a gift. It's an unconditional gift that he has granted to us in Christ. Ephesians 1. In fact, let's look at that. Go to Ephesians 1. I should have pulled this up if that had occurred to me before this second. Ephesians 1 is uh, sometimes called our spiritual blessings in Christ. Listen to this. Think, these are not only undeserved, but they're unconditional, right? Because it happened before you were around to meet any conditions We'll start at Ephesians 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Unconditional. You didn't do anything. It's a gift, right? Pure gift. Verse 5. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, Through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, undeserved, unconditional, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect. This is all one sentence, by the way, in Greek. When the times have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Literally one sentence. He goes on. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the purpose of his glory. That is all grace. Grace, 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 grace. But it's a particular kind of grace. It is a grace that is both unmerited, I say undeserved and unconditional, you are not a contingent piece in those things coming to pass. That's a thing, and that's the bedrock of our lives. In addition to that, there are other graces. Your life is filled with things that you don't deserve. Your life is filled with good things, with graces that you do not merit, but, and this is the crazy thing, but that you have some condition to fulfill. right? And all that is, that is just another way to say... That the causes of your life produce real effects. That the Bible, over and over and over again, in addition to the affirmation that our salvation, our election from eternity past is unconditional, that there is also the opportunity to do things in this world that actually matter. But when you do them, God will still, even in those, be gracious to you. He'll give you more than you deserve. So grace is always undeserved. It's always an abundance. It's always more than, but it is sometimes contingent upon some role that we play to unleash it, right? So you'll have language like this. I'll give, I'll give you a couple of passages from Scripture, and then I'll give you guys a chance to jump in here. A couple of things like this. You might see 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You see the causal chain there? The grace of a generous reaping is linked to the condition of a generous sowing. Right? 2 Corinthians 9. Galatians 6.9 Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. The condition is that we don't give up. And the result, the grace, is that we reap this harvest. How about this one? To the children. You guys might appreciate this one. Ephesians 6.1 Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then he says this, honor your mother and father. What's he quoting there? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, right? Honor your father and mother. And he says, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. The grace is it goes well with you, but the condition is being ob- obedient to your parents there is a blessing. There is a cause and an effect. We go on and on. There's, in fact, I will if you want me to. There's lots of these. Um, sometimes those things are describing graces without calling them graces. And sometimes it, the language is explicit. Where the Bible is going to say this is a grace identified in that in that terminology that is contingent upon something else. So here's, I'll give you a couple of those. James 4.10. No, no, no. Let's start. Let's start, let's start at James 4.6. It says... But he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to whom? The humble. So the condition is humility. And the grace is that he gives us grace. It's explicit, right? Um, Or maybe we could go down to this one. Here's one uh, similar, Proverbs 33. Same idea, Proverbs three thirty-four. He mocks... Proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Um, that passage about sowing generously and reaping generously. The next verse there um, says that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That grace is a, a contingent grace, a conditional grace upon these other things. Second uh, Corinthians nine six to eight. That whole set, or Hebrews four sixteen. Let us then approach the throne of grace. Hear this. Hear how gentle the condition is. Okay, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may f- receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right. So, if you want to experience mercy and grace, there is a condition. What is it? You have approached the approach the throne we seek him right and by and large not in a hundred percent of situations but but the prevailing condition is that we seek him right if anyone is thirsty let him come to me and drink right so the condition is first you got to be thirsty second you've got to come to him that we receive from him when we move toward him God opposes the pride he gives grace to the humble it is the humble that seek him if we draw near to God according to James then he will do you know the next line? Draw near to us. Draw him drawing near to us is the grace, but the condition is that we draw near to him, right? So sometimes his grace is both unconditional and unmerited. Sometimes his grace is unmerited but conditional. But it is always unmerited. And here's here's what I want to like kind of try to flip in your brain, and then I'll give you guys a chance to interact with this. <laughs> it's your life is filled with cause and effect chains. Is it not, you've noticed this, that all day long you're doing something that produces an effect all the time. The stunning thing about the fact that God's grace is always unmerited but not always unconditional is not that something has to be done but that it's always grace. See, sometimes you will think, you might believe that when I do this and it produces that result then I made that happen and you could be blind to the fact that that entire operation was one of enormous grace right? You could meet the condition and get nothing in return. And very often that should be the case. You might, you might think like, well, I'm a shrewd investor and that is why my stock portfolio is up, right? Well, I mean, maybe, but would you have been a shrewd investor if you were born in Venezuela in 1650? (laughs) I don't think you would have been, right? That In in Deuteronomy 8, it it says that God, um, he says, when you get wealthy, don't forget the Lord, right? Don't say, look at what I have created with my own hands. For it is the Lord who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so it it confirms his covenant, right? So even when we meet the condition and we congratulate ourselves that we have caused this effect, you did not cause the effect. We're just not that powerful. We're not that wise. We're not that brilliant but we live in a sea of grace. Even when you do the right thing and it produces the desired end, that whole world is you live in a sea of grace, even when the grace is conditional. So all that to say, I don't want, you to, I don't want to focus on the idea that grace is sometimes conditional, but I want to focus on even when you meet the condition, it's still all of grace. Feel the difference there? Okay, so that's what I meant to say. So it, Judy, you want to jump in? Yeah. So one of the things I thought
1: Everything would be working. Yes. And we would have a perfect life. But they're not keepable. Okay, so it's also to de- demonstrate that you're not capable of keeping them. Yes. And Jesus came not to overthrow those laws, but to fulfill those laws. So the laws didn't just vanish. He fulfilled all of those because he was the perfect person. So when when I think about what you're saying, what I think about is, is the race. That you're talking about for a good life and for things that go well and the choices that you make and the humility and honor your parents and all the things that bring quality to your life now and your ability to um, do things for God in Christ, for the things that He's called you to do come through kind of that um, through the, the sort of the law part of it. But the grace, grace part for eternity, which is unmerited completely unmerited, so that's merited by making good choices and good results, but then the <coughs> salvation, unmerited, and you can blow off all that and have a terrible life, but if you truly, truly, truly have um, asked for forgiveness and, and have accepted Christ's death in your place, you are still, for eternity, that grace that was given to you, regardless of what else you've done, so that's the unmerited part.
0: Okay, Yes.
1: You know, you, and, and you, you go into the presence of God with nothing in your hands because you did nothing and your hair on fire and ashes everywhere but you still made it mm-hmm. through
0: grace
1: yes. but you didn't have any gifts to give to your Savior you didn't have a life that was, you know, what it could have been because of the small graces is what I would
0: say <coughs> the extra graces yeah,
1: the choices that you were given that you have the guidance and the favor to do
0: okay, yes Okay, that's good. So let me, and this is, the, we can't, I could become, I have a great capacity to become tedious and pedantic. So bear with me, okay? But, so I would say, but what you're characterizing is the big grace and the little grace. Or maybe saving grace and then extra grace, okay? I would suggest they're both unmerited. Both undeserved. But that one is conditional and the other is unconditional, Okay. Okay, so, yes, that the, it is absolutely the case that our, the salvation that we have in Christ, what he has promised from eternity past to rescue us and draw us, that is what well, we, the, the root of it all is an unconditional election, which we're not going to chase that all the way down today, okay? But yes, that is absolutely unconditional. And then on top of that, he gives us other things. Now, let me show, let me show a Bible passage that will, or two passages that will tie that together. So go, go to Deuteronomy, um, or I'm sorry, go to Exodus, rather, chapter 19. Because you're going to see, and stay with me here, don't lose your mind for the first half. Stay around for the second act, okay? So in, in Exodus, what's Exodus, and yet, what's going on in Exodus 19? Anybody know? What is it, Kat? Right before, the Ten right before the Ten Commandments. Excellent. Okay, so Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. Exodus 19 is like Ten Commandment Eve, okay? So it's right about to happen. And on Ten Commandment Eve, in Exodus 19.3, God brings Moses up on this mountain, Right? And he says this. Hear this, Judy. He says, This is what you say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell to the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, verse 5. Check it. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Is that conditional or unconditional? And what is the condition? Perfect obedience. Anybody feeling confident? Okay. So, Judy, the the Old Testament affirms, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you get all these things you be my treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. To which we all just say, well, is there a plan B? <laughs> right? Because that's never going, okay? So and there is a plan B. So now, with that in your mind, go over to, go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And look at what Peter is going to say. This is just pretty, pretty fantastic. In chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Peter's quoting Exodus 19.5, but he changes it. Listen to this. He says in 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Okay, Those are, that's, that's Exodus 19.5. You hear it, it's not a hard connection to make. If you go through clause for clause, he's quoting Exodus 19.5, but it's different, isn't it? Because there's no condition. He doesn't say, if you obey me fully, then you'll be these things. He just says, Ted, you are. You are these things. You are chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the gospel is that not, it is not that the condition of, has been removed, it is that the condition has been met. Right? That Jesus obeyed fully. That Jesus is the full keeper of the covenant. And having done so on our behalf, he then gives us credit for his perfect life, takes the blame for ours, and we make this swap. Right? So it has become, it was once conditional. It was framed conditionally so that a group of people would despair that they had no hope. And in their despair, they would cry out for mercy. And in their crying out for mercy, they would find it, that Jesus has met the condition. So our salvation is an unmerited, unconditional salvation because the condition has been met. And then in addition to that, we are given the dignity of having lives that matter, that we can affect real change as we seek him. And as we seek him, he will give us more than we deserve. It'll always be unmerited. It'll always be more, but it is in fact conditioned upon the things that we do. So many, many blessings in our lives. How's that working? Is that all tidied up? Is that good? All right, Catherine. Um, in 1 Peter 5, uh, is it <clears throat> 7? No, 6. No, 7. I'm mean 5, me. Somewhere in First Peter. 1 <laughs> <laughs> Peter 5. The proud, but shows favor to the humble. Yeah. And,
1: and I've heard that as shows grace to the humble.
0: Yeah, that's how NIV translates it. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Yep.
1: And, and even humility. See, the thing about it is that we are to humble ourselves before God. But for me, it's like humbling myself before God is saying, God, I, I don't know how to be humble. You, I need you to do that here.
0: And so he even enables us. That's right. That's right. So that's a great claim here. And it's, we saw this. We looked last week at 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul is basically saying, I worked harder than all of them, which is that he's meeting the condition. And he's like, well, but even that was God's grace in me. Right. So we live in this sea of iterative grace where we seek him and he's gracious to us and it emboldens us to, to obey him and he responds to that. And there's just this cascading effect of not a downward spiral but an outward spiral whereas we trust him and walk with him, he gives us the things that we need for the day, which gives us greater strength to trust him for greater things, and, and it spins out. And the plan is that we would do that forever and ever and ever and ever, endlessly increasing more. That's the, Lewis calls it the further up and further in at the very end of the Chronicles of Narnia, that we're just going to go deeper in to his love and his grace. Okay, anybody sitting on attack? Is Is that, that kind of, how we doing? This is a great place, a great time to be like, well, yeah, but I still think you're a heretic. <laughs> we good we good we good okay if you are afraid to say something in the crowd you can always email me and i'll be more than happy to engage with you okay we're gonna keep going first samuel chapter 27 so let's turn there and we'll continue on this story fortunately just as 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 a providence would have it first samuel 27 is a short chapter and so we got a little bit more time here we're we're okay so 1 Samuel 27, what did we do last week besides this whole grace thing? What was going down in David's life? Say it loud, what, what, what? Yeah, Saul's just up to the same old tricks and David's like, yeah, whatever, okay. And yet, God rescues him, right? Over and over and over again. God, David has this providential thing where he's getting hunted, he's getting chased, God shows up, and the way that works is when God shows up in your life, It gives you more strength. It gives you more courage. Bill Bright used to say that faith is like a muscle, and it grows when we exercise it. And so as we begin chapter 27, David has been through so many difficult circumstances with Saul, but God has rescued him from all of them, that we might expect that he's going to be, like, even greater, even stronger, even more full of faith, even more courageous, even less able to be intimidated. And if you think that, strap in, okay? So 1 Samuel 27, watch what happens. (laughs) Verse 1, David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines, and then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Does that stun anybody? One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Saul. Isn't that the opposite of what you might have thought the narrative would lead to?
1: <laughs>
0: I can tell you, when I, was, I would say when I was younger, this would have shocked me. Because like, that's not how it's supposed to work. Like When God shows up, you're like, all right, we're, we feel better about it. Victory produces victory. But the older I get, the more this makes sense to me. Does it make sense to any of you yet? This is a great victory. And yet... I'm tired. And I don't want to do this again. And maybe I've spent the last token. You know, Have you seen have, are there other places in the Bible where you see this human phenomena? that, like, God has showed up. Everything's faithful. Let's go. And then you're like, crash and burn. I don't want to play anymore. One of these days. Robin?
1: Elijah.
0: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I think that, that, that is probably in my mind. So t- can you tell us a little bit what's, what's Elijah at Mount Carmel? What's going on there?
1: Well, he has... Um, The priests of Baal, and there were a whole bunch of them, and it was just Elijah. And they he had them, they were going to see what whose God did something basically. And so they um, built altars and did all the same thing, except Elijah poured tons and tons of water that the trench around his was full. And God sent fire from heaven and it engulfed it all and all the bailed priests at the same time. And then he runs in hears that Jezebel is going to kill him because he's killed all the priests. Yes. He goes into the desert and he despairs of his life. He just goes into a seriously deep...
0: Absolutely. Let, let's flip there. Robin's retelling is perfect. Go, go to First Kings 18 and 19. This is, I think, the same phenomenon, and it's just worth looking at because you may win a great victory and then want to quit. First Kings 18 um, is where the good stuff is happening, and Elijah has this—I mean, it is a big showdown where God answers in a dramatic way and c- conquers the enemy, and Elijah looks so good, and everything's fantastic— and let's see, let's, you could read through, you could, you could read chapters 18 and 19 later on. Um, uh, look, at, look at verse 36, though, 18:36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and you are turning their hearts back again. The fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, licked up the water in the trench. All the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah commands them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seize them. Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. It is an absolute rout. Total victory. Complete conquering. And everything is fantastic. Then it begins to rain and they've been in this massive drought. God is restoring all things. And then, look at what happens in 191. Elijah was afraid. Oh, oh, that's 19.3. Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Look at what he says here in verse 4. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. He he gets a nap and then an angel makes him some cookies. (laughs) I mean, it's so great. (laughs) And it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up, eat, for the journey is too much for you. He said earlier, I've had enough. Now the journey is too much. So he got up and he ate and he drank. And strengthened by food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights. I think it's like a month and a half to think about it. And he's still gone, baby, gone. In verse 10, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Is anything missing in his little history? Isn't that amazing? Have you ever been through something that's like been really hard and you've been really successful, but all you can remember is the really hard? Like it does not mention that whole slaughtering the evil ones. It doesn't mention God answering with fire. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but they've broken down your altars, they've cutting everybody to death, and now they're gonna kill me. It's just amazing in this. And I think. I think in all of that, again, I'll I'll, I'll appeal to the older ones among you. He looks like he's just being a crybaby until you get a... Broadens, welcome. So glad to see you guys. We love you. We miss you. Glad you're here. Um, uh, I don't know what I was talking about. What? (laughs) You ruined everything. Um, What was I saying? Something about... It was really good, I'm sure. What? Oh, yeah, yeah. It seems like he's being a crybaby. But the older I get, the more that I'm sympathetic to Elijah, right? It was hard. And yeah, David, like Saul's, you know, been defeated again and again and again. But it's exhausting. It is hard to live in that space. And so I think we should be gracious to David instead of being like, What is your problem? Like God's gonna God's gonna move. Like, maybe, yeah. I mean he did, but tomorrow's a whole new day, and I'm afraid and I'm tired, and this is growing wearisome. Michael?
1: Yeah, not to di- to diminish what David's going through, but Elijah's actually basically attacks the text, by himself. Yeah. it has got 600 men with him, so I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, A lot to keep up with him. He's got to leave them, and they're following him, so I'm not sure
0: how much it's true, it's going to mend it. yeah, and so I think, so you've got a little more empathy for Elijah, who is genuinely alone, than for David, so maybe David is being a crybaby, like, right, right? And, and, there's, and there's something to it, although I've got to think that David's men, he's not alone physically, but he and his men have a, there's a pretty big gap between them, right? What do his men want? Kill. Just kill Saul. This is not that. Look how many swords we have. Let's go, right? And so there's a real extent to which David is alone because he and only he is radically committed to never laying a hand on Saul. So there's a, leadership is isolating, being the only one that's willing to be righteous is isolating and life is hard you know zach did you want to say something you agree yeah it's hard yeah tommy
1: i was gonna say uh for the um, the leadership side in a lot of ways having those 600 might have made that more difficult um especially in leadership like once when you've got the direction you're going and you're leading people in that direction you're motivating them um sometimes those are the easier times. Mm. when all of a sudden like the crisis has passed and now where do we go Yes. That can be like a really trying time. Absolutely.
0: There's a lot of people that, in history, we can see that they're radically successful as long as they've got a heavy sled to draw, you know. And then that one, well, as soon as the battle's over, then you just fall apart, right? And that's where David is. Like, he's, you know, he's been, he's been fully focused, he's going to get through this thing, and then now he just, he needs a nap and some cookies, you know. He just does, and, and, and don't we all, okay? So what does he do? Where's he going to go? Yes. Gath. Okay, is this, reman- is this reminiscent for anybody? Because he's, he's, he's been here. Look at, look at in uh, where is this? In chapter 21, if you flip back to chapter 21, he went to the same place. Remember when he was like drooling in his beard and acting like an imbecile? That was the same location, right? So in, uh, where are we at? We're only going we're only through one verse so far. Okay. Verse 2. So David and the 600 men with him left and went to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish, and each man had his family with him. David had his two wives. That's interesting and then when, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath he no longer searched for him so do you do you remember the story last time when David went to went to Achish what what was Achish's response do you remember this yeah like am I so short of madmen that we need one more like get what are you what are you doing and he basically gets rid of him this time how does Achish respond do you know what he's going to do you gave
1: him somewhere to-
0: yeah, he's going to give him a place to live. He's going to basically put him in the army. But in this ridiculously serendipitous way, it makes him be like an independent army. Um, David, look at what David says. He's just so clever, I guess we'll say. Verse 5. David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a peace be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So he affects a posture of humility. I'm not worthy to live in your city. The reality is I want to be able to f- be free to do what I want to do and slaughter all the enemies of Israel without you knowing it is really what's going on there. And so in verse 6, On that day Achish gave him a ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. And David lived in the Philistine territory for a year and four months. Okay, now this is early in the kingship, right? Early in the, uh, not kingship, but the kingdom, the monarchy of Israel. What was the mission of, of the people of Israel as they came into the promised land? What was it? Conquer the land, right? Did they? When David becomes king, had they conquered the land? They had not. Kelly? Uh,
1: they were specifically told to kill every man, and
0: a child. They were. And so they were supposed to kill every inhabitant and every born nation. They did it, and that's why Saul, That's exactly right. So so Kelly's exactly, you may not be able to hear it. Kelly's saying that their mission as they come into the promised land is to decimate it, to kill everybody. Go Go to Deuteronomy 20. This is tough on our ears, so just take it, okay? This is Deuteronomy 20. This is old news, but it was old news that had never been fulfilled. This was a mission that they had not completed. So in Deuteronomy 20, and we'll do like verse 16, 16 and 17, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And that was not kept. In fact, as Kelly said, this is, this is the reason that Saul loses his kingship, is he refuses to obey the command. And they leave, because they, because they leave all these foreign nations around them, what happens? What is it, Bob? They worship their gods. What's back here? Somebody else? Same thing? They become like, they become like them, right? So God, God knew that if, we, if, if you are intermingling with all these pagans that worship all these fake gods, then invariably they're going to shape you. They're going to influence you. You're going to stop worshiping me. You're going to start worshiping their gods. That's, they don't clear the land, and that is precisely what happens. And so what David is about to do. So this is so – David is fleeing for his life, his – Reasonably speaking, his primary objective is to stay alive long enough to become king. But while he is fleeing for his life, living as a Philistine, which is like their number one enemy, he manages to like get himself over here into Ziklag, into this little like out-of-the-way place. And then he raids city after city after city and fulfills Deuteronomy 20. Even while he's defending himself, he is on the offense to go accomplish the purposes of God. He is functioning like the king whose job is to clear the land, to create a place for the people of God to grow and to mature without any risk of them falling into foreign worship. And, and he succeeds wildly at it, which is so, I'm telling you, man, this is why David is a man after God's own heart in some strange ways. He's got some significant failures that we're going to see. And really, they're going to they're really going to start stacking up very soon. But look at what happens here. Go to verse 8. Now, David and his men went up and they raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people that lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. And whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took the sheep and the cattle, the donkeys, camels, and clothes. He's Deuteronomy 20-ing it. He's, he's fulfilling the obligation that God has given to the people. And then he returns to Achish. Now, this is where it gets a little uncomfortable to me, all right? When Achish said, where did you go raiding today? David would say, David would lie. David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremel, whatever that is. Against the Negev of the Kenites. And he did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he sought they might inform on us and say, this is what David said. David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. And Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. So what does Akish think is happening? He thinks he's fighting against Israel, and instead he's fighting for Israel. and um, We've had this conversation, and I don't know how we're going to resolve this, right? I don't think you can ever lie, period. And probably everyone in this room probably disagrees with me about that. But David, David is clearly being deceptive. Now maybe you say in war... Deception is the is the essence of war, and maybe 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 I'm wrong about that. But this part always makes me really uncomfortable. John,
1: the way to resolve this is that uh, David was a sinful man like
0: we are. Right. Yes. Well, if if only. Right. And so, but so the the question becomes to me, and I really I wish I had some brilliant. I don't have a brilliant answer for this. Is God blessing David despite his lies, or is God blessing David because of his lies? Is his deception an an ordained thing? Some would argue that morality exists in a stacked order and this crime, because it's less than the other possible, this sin is less than the other and so therefore is an acceptable lie. War has deception. And that might be true. That is not my position, but maybe it's uh, so. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah, but we've got murder. We have wives. Yeah. So there's other. So okay. So so yeah. So and we're not even touching. We haven't even gotten into the whole multiple wives thing, right? So there are other things about David's life that we're like, what's up with that? Like, is he allowed to have multiple wives? Um, in in great discomfort, there is. Biblical evidence that, yes, he was allowed to have multiple wives. God is going to say to him later on, he's got, God's going to comment on his multiple wives in a way that is very uncomfortably affirming. It's very, very strange, right? So was that permissible? I mean, maybe. It's weird, right? We'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there. Um, so maybe there's, we, have, we, we, we function under a certain sense of jurisprudence, how things work. But we also think that things that are right are always right, and things that are wrong are always wrong. So I think we're invited to kind of wrestle with this. Robin and then John.
1: Um, in James, it says, if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken the whole. law." That's right. But, um, and does not God bless us even though there's
0: sin in our life? Yes. So, I, I I can absolutely live with, so Robin has said, like, if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. And that's that's true. That doesn't mean that when you do one thing wrong, you're guilty of everything that you have done, but you've broken the law, right? Right. Um, and that God blesses us despite our disobedience. No que- I have no problem saying that God blesses David despite his disobedience. But I would like to know if we're also saying that God blesses David because of his lie. That's where some would say that, and that's where I, I wouldn't be able to go that far. So, John?
1: Okay, first, again, uh, Robin is absolutely correct. Um, uh, he blesses us in spite of the fact that uh, overall it's dangerous. Um, Second thing is that uh, God's purposes are not going to be thwarted because uh, his chosen instrument happened to be kind of stinky uh, The patriarchs, I mean, uh, they were not nice people. Uh, Jacob was, not, was definitely not a nice person. Uh, Abraham uh, could be kind of stinky. But uh, God's
0: purpose is not forwarded by us. Yes. And I've heard, I've heard that, John, that summarized before is that God can write straight with a crooked stick. Right? And that God's, if God has made a decision to accomplish his purposes through the agency of people, this is, you're the best he's got. Right? This is what he has to work with. Right? And there will be all kinds of failings and shortcomings. And that could, that, that could be a sufficient explanation for it. What do I think? Judy? Oh, did, anybody, did, I, did, I, did I say somebody after John? Okay, we're all okay. We'll, we'll run the line. Judy, you want to go? No, I'll shut up.
1: Um, <laughs> again, I, it's, it's, he's a fallen person. That's the small grace. Yeah. Could God have done the same thing with him telling the truth? Sure, but that's who David is, and those things grow in the cracks. Yeah. He's, he's not Jesus, and so yeah, should he lie? Probably not. Did he
0: lie? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think that's probably a pretty apt summary, Tommy.
1: Um, I was uh, thinking that there are kind of different uh, different requirements for different missions that you do. On mm. Undercover as a DEA agent, for instance, it necessitates lies in order to um, to be in that position. And uh, you know, like when God told um, Moses to send out spies into the land, um, honesty would uh, kind of it would completely undermine the whole role of being a spy if they came out and said we're spying on. the land, Yeah. <laughs> They'll come for you, kind
0: of. Kind yeah, of free, you know. yeah. There are there are places where, and we could get into you know exactly what when does deception become a lie? Is a is a trick play in a football game? That's a deception, but is that sin? And so, there, there, are there missions where that's more permissible? Right? That's a good question. All right, you get the last shot at it, and then we're gonna move on.
1: Well, my thought yeah. before you were talking about stacking of sins. Yeah get that because we make laws that have different punishments, you know, and we stack sins in our own way. But Jesus says that if you call somebody an idiot, it's the same thing as murder. You're going to be experience of you know, burning, hellfire, and all that. So, you know, I think that as far as God, you know, we can't understand that God understands what he does, but he sees also as
0: well, okay, so that, okay, oh, that's tempting to me. So I don't know if we've talk, I don't, we haven't talked about this. I don't accept, there's a common premise that God sees all sins as equal, and I don't think that's true, okay? We could, we could give that a week if you wanted to, if anybody's like, what? Um, because I do, think, I do think all sins separate us from God. That is true. But it's a, it's a pretty new phenomenon. Um, there is a claim, there's a pervasive claim that all sins are equally heinous in the sight of God. And I can't, I cannot for the life of me make a, make a case for that biblically. And in fact, I think we could make the alternative case that some sins are greater than others. All sin separates us from God, but not all sins are equally heinous. So, and if the hands want to come up, we'll do this. We'll just, every week, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just, we'll just go. But we, we could make, I think we could make a very strong case. All sin matters. And I think that's what we're trying to go after. Maybe what's even behind the Robin's comment, not behind Robin's comment, but James's comment that Robin is quoting, that if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. That is true. But, but let me just ask you, just consider, if I were to walk up to you and spit in your face, would that be sin? Would that be wrong? Would that be evil? Okay. If I were to walk up to you with an ice pick and gouge out your eyes... Would that be worse? Yes. Yes. That can we agree? Okay. Can God tell the difference? Yes. Yes. I think He can. Okay. I think God can tell this. So, So all sin is all sin is sin. It's true, but not all sins are equally heinous. And it's really it's interesting. It's it is pervasively believed in our culture today that all sins are equal. Has almost no historical precedent within Christianity. No, no, no prior centuries taught that, believe that. It shows up, and um, you can look up West. Go look up Westminster Catechism, and ask the. Go to. Go to. Just Google Westminster or all sins equally heinous, and you get a diatribe about how how they're not. Okay, but they all matter, but they're not all equal. Okay, and you intuitively know this, and you are not more morally astute than God. Okay, all right, Catherine.
1: Uh, what's,
0: where's that scripture
1: that says there are seven things that God...
0: Thinks? Yes. A state, some kind of a Where is it? Proverbs 6? Proverbs 6? There's a whole bunch of things. It'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than you. Um, Jesus says, the one who handed you handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. There's plenty of stratification um, within, the, within the scriptures about the nature of sin. So it's all bad, but self-evidently it is... There's some things that are worse than others, okay? Okay, Lily, we'll keep going.
1: Well, I just wonder if um, part of the hang-up for people where people are inclined to say that all sins are created equal is um, perhaps what they're
0: looking for. It's all men that are created equal. Right. That's your phrase, right? Yes.
1: <laughs> but, um, but it's rather that the, what they're looking for is the affirmation that God's grace equally covers men.
0: Okay. All sinners,
1: all sinners. Yes.
0: Okay, great. So if we're saying so if we're saying all sins are equally forgivable, would we affirm that? Absolutely, right. In fact, we're right. We're we're sin abounds. Oh, what's that, Bob? Except
1: for the sin that Jesus said is not?
0: Yes. Okay. And now, and now we'll never get out of this class. Okay. We're not gonna. We're just not. We're just not. We're not doing that today. Okay. But we. But we absolutely we can affirm that we're sin abounds. Grace super abounds. Right. So this, this is true. It's all coverable. It all matters. It's all coverable. But you just intuitively know that there are some things that are worse than others. And the Bible affirms this. The, the risk of it is that we, we, if we affirm that all sins are equally heinous, then we leave people thinking that God is morally suspect. For surely he should be able to tell the difference between a lesser thing and a greater thing you, you could you could paint the picture that he really just flies off the handle at the smallest thing you know like your kid leaves a toy in the family room and you beat them to death you know it's like well hang on a second you know like there's there's degrees of irresponsibility there's degrees of you know heinousness we don't we don't say that speeding is a capital offense right praise his name okay joel
1: not to disagree with that at all, but the other ditch you can wind up into is to say that, well,
0: I haven't killed anybody, so I'm really not that bad. That's right. Then we get into this like rationalization that, well, I don't really need God's grace. It's not really sin. It's a little lie. You know, that kind of thing. That's right. Know that well. yes. So we we must we, we I think we must affirm biblically that all sin is a, is a rebellion against God. All sin falls into that double box of. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me and they have dug broken cisterns for themselves. That's true across the board. But we can, we can do things in ways that are more or less heinous within that framework. So, for sure. Ellen?
1: That's what I was going to say. That we would, it's, it's wrong for us to radiate sin in that sense. That, ah, it's just a little sin. It's not that much. Because it does separate.
0: That's right. All sin matters, but some things matter more. Both, we got to be able to live. Your life is full of dynamic tensions. you got to hold them both, and th- those are two things. And we, when we don't like, I'll tell you, if you don't like dynamic tension, then you just give up one and embrace the other, and you're going to find yourself in error. You can't, you can't do either side. Did you want to add something? Well, I just thought, I um, thought it my mind that, yeah, all sin is forgivable. All sin matters to God and should to us. But sin does carry various consequences. Consequences to other people, and therefore to ourselves. that's right yeah so I could do something that causes a small injury to few or great injury to many right I could do something that incurs a small judgment on myself or a great judgment on myself and, and this is just our, intu- our intuition on this is pretty clear and it's important that when we see that we have that intuition that we don't pretend that God cannot see that distinction as well for he does okay Bill
1: Sounds like to me, this argument is circular a little bit. It's almost like you're denying grace. We think we deserve, since we didn't sin as bad as somebody else, we earned more grace. Yes. And so taking away the not married.
0: Yes. Yeah, so if we if we if I just compare myself to like your sinfulness, then I feel awesome about that, you know, and so. But relative to you know maybe Linda, then I'm going to feel a lot worse right I can put myself in this in this in this spectrum so we want to be careful okay so let's just put a cap on this and then will let you guys go. All right so at the very end here uh, where, are, where are we? Um, verse 12. So Achish, here's the thing so Achish trusted David. oh no we already said this so Akish trusted David and said to himself, he's become so odious to his people the Israelites that he will be my servant forever." Everybody gets David wrong all the time. Is David going to be his servant forever? No, he's going to become the opposing king of a nation that will be at war with him like for all of time. And what David is doing throughout, oh man, what David is doing throughout this whole thing, it's really amazing. He is seeking to be safe because remember he's afraid. He's beginning, there's cracks in his ability to trust the Lord, but it doesn't crack and he doesn't just shatter, right? In his fear He steps into this place that I think is somewhat questionable, right? And he's going to employ some strategies that I think are somewhat questionable and that probably trace back to his fear. Fear will make you lie, right? But he's not so far gone that he does not remember God. He could just hide. He could just hide out in a ziklag and just, you know, become like fat Thor, right? He could just be there waiting, right? But he doesn't. He's like, there's an opportunity here for me to go and to accomplish the purposes of God. And he does that. And that's how our lives are. Like we rarely are like all good and we're rarely all bad. There is a mixture. You're getting some things right. You're getting some things wrong. We're waiting for the Messiah to come who will do all things well. We see that David continues to be the template that points to Messiah, but he won't be able to keep his own promise, right? We're waiting for the real one to come who will be all that we need to be, that will be the source of all blessing and grace for us. All right, good enough for now? Next week, chapter 28.
1: Thank you.